and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to keep the spooky train moving right along, and we're going to be discussing 1996's Scream, written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven. Uh, it's a very known horror movie. Uh, it spawned a bunch of sequels. It's a very influential horror film, as we'll discuss a little bit later in the podcast. Um, and it, it is one of my favorite horror movies. Um, I do, of course, in the last episode, I talked about how much I love Carrie, 1976, and that still stands. But this is also a favorite of mine as well. Um, I think it's just really smartly written. I think it, you know, launched a lot of careers for people, which which is awesome. Um, and overall, I still think it's really great, um, at least in my personal view. So plan for podcast is that we'll go over some figures as we normally do. Uh, I'll go into some critical response quotes from the time and, you know, other people talking about it. Uh, then we'll go into some production history information. Uh, might even learn a little bit about horror movies as a whole. Um, and then we'll move into a plot summary where I talk about the film and what happens in it. And then we'll wrap up. So let's get started. So Scream was released December 20th, 1996. It was written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven, produced by Kathy Conrad and Carrie Woods. It was also executive produced by um, the Weinstein Brothers. Blah. But anyway, uh, and released by Dimension Films. This budget was about 14 to $16 million. I've seen both of those figures out there. And the box office was $103.7 million in the U.S. Uh, and Canada. And then it ended up making $173 million as a worldwide gross. We're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of 79% on the tomato meter. And a 79% uh, audience score as of whenever I got that information a couple days ago. Uh, we have an IMDb score of 7.4 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 4 out of 5. I've pulled some critical response quotes from some critics about what they think about Scream. So we got Stephen Hunter from the Baltimore Sun. Hey, Baltimore Sun. Uh, and this was released October 6, 2013. Stephen Hunter states, The movie's only wrinkle is that it is, in a crude fashion, postmodernist. Pardon me while I alert the media. So he thinks he's, like, real, you know, sassy. Then you have Jeff Weiss from uh, the Desert Times from Salt Lake City, who said, pre the 2000s, I guess, stated, First, it's not scary. And second, after seeing it, you may scream at yourself for wasting your time and money. And then we have Bob Stevens from the San Francisco Examiner, who stated, In an age that is nearly devoid of talented horror movie directors, it has become tiresome having to consider the inconsiderable, aggravating to search for rationales for the haphazardly assembled creations of people like Craven. So, you know, when talking about uh, cult classic cinema, since that's what this podcast is all about, um, you know, something like Scream, I do consider to be a kind of cult classic of cinema, um, because, you know, when it comes down to it, like, horror itself tends to have uh, cult following as a whole, um, so I definitely will cover different horror movies. I'm planning to do so um, in the next coming weeks, especially since around this time that this will be releasing, it'll be around October time. You know, spooky season, so why not release some spooky episodes uh, about spooky movies? Um, but you know, I mean, this movie has been referenced so much in our pop culture. You know, it made a fair amount of money, it spawned all these sequels. There was an MTV show made about it. You know, of course, it's kind of in our zeitgeist and in everything. Um, 
in the mainstream a lot of the time, of course. You know, they had a new movie release in 2022. They're making the new one, uh, Scream 6, I guess, now. And uh, there's just been a whole lot of news on it. Um, you know, but I still think it's very important that, you know, this movie is... is There's a certain level of respect I have for it. Um, and it's just one that I can kind of watch whenever. Any of these movies, really, like these Scream movies, I am down for at any time. <laughs> um, even if I maybe don't like one as much, um, for my own reasons, um, I will always sit down and have a good time with watching them. So before we hop into like a production history of what happened with Scream and also like plot summary and all that, I think it's important to take the time to uh, talk a little bit about what the state of horror movies was in the mid-90s by this time that Scream came out. Um, and to do that, we'll go over a little bit of horror history uh, delivered by yours truly. Um, to kind of just contextualize where had horror movies come from um, and also just like kind of what did they look like business-wise, you know? And then um, I think that'll help kind of contextualize why Scream itself as a movie was just a real good revitalization of the genre as a whole. So um, I didn't go to school for film or film studies or any of this stuff, but just as a, a fan of this genre and doing a whole lot of research and all that kind of stuff, um, I'm going to go through this as quick and as concisely as I can. So let's start. So if we look at um, movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu that came out of Germany back in the 1920s, um, Again, I don't think those came over right away to America, um, but those were like German expressionist films that had that kind of um, horror edge to them uh, and are still kind of scary to this day, honestly. Um, you know, so you have those kinds of films. Then in the 30s uh, in, in the US, we had the Universal Monster movies. So we're looking at, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, um, the Invisible Man, you know, what have you with those. Um, but again, those were movies that were kind of based off of of like um you know book here or there um and again they were brought to the screen by universal and they're still known to this day of course um and that was kind of a, a good basis for what we know of as horror uh the old dark house also comes to mind as well um <clears throat> which was a really good movie actually then in the 40s you have like the wolfman you have cat people by val luton um and you got a couple of those kinds of movies coming out as well um and then in the 50s you have like creature features especially so you have like the thing from another world um that came out which was i believe a howard hawks movie um but it then got turned into the thing from in 1982 uh with john carpenter he remade the thing from another world um but you also had movies like you know them which is about like these uh, giant killer ants you also had like the creature from the black lagoon um and again you had these kinds of films uh that were using you know the other um you know it was like a kind of thinly veiled sort of um, allegory of communism and all that. But then when we look at modern horror as we kind of know it today, we can really look and pinpoint um, in 1960, you had Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho come out. And that was a really, it was a, a really good film for its time, you know, and it's still a really great film, but you know, 
that was like the proto slasher, if you will, um, because you didn't know who it, who it was, you didn't know who was killing who, um, and you know you had the whole like you know you think that Marion Crane is gonna live through the whole movie and she gets killed in the first half hour um and then it's kind of a mystery and then you find out at the end who did it so i think that really kind of cemented like you know okay this is important and this is like horror um quote unquote but then you also had other movies you know you have the haunting from robert wise which was based off of a book by shirley jackson um called the haunting of hill house which then obviously you know nowadays got turned into a netflix series but these are kind of uh, the roots that we're looking at we also have movies like Rosemary's Baby from Roman Polanski, bleh, but it was based off of Ira Levin's book, um, and so, you know, that's also a really transgressive movie for its time, horrifying, of course, because, you know, Mia Farrow has the devil's baby, pretty much. And then you have Night of the Living Dead by George A. Romero, which gave us the archetype and, like, pretty much the the seminal zombie movie of what we know of as zombies today. Um so that was also very influential as well and was very important there's also of course the fact that like you know everyone dies in that movie too um the main character the main um protagonist in the film is a black man um there's also talk of that as well you could get into um Dwayne Jones like just kills it in that role it's so good um so that's what you have with the 60s, especially since there was a lot going on culturally within the 60s as well. Um, what with civil rights at the time, uh, you also had like, um, you know, you had like Stonewall at the end of that for, you know, gay rights and all. The women's movement, you know, would be coming in soon um, so women could empower themselves more. And then the 70s, you got a whole lot of uh, directors kind of starting. You know, George A. Romero had started with Night of the Living Dead and a little bit of movies before that. But, you know, um, you got like our boy, Wes Craven, who directed this film, it Scream, you know, he made Last House on the Left, he made Hills Have Eyes in 1970, I think, six or five or something like that. You have him, you have Toby Hooper making the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you have, uh, you know, Bob Clark, who made Black Christmas in Canada, David Cronenberg, who's, you know, playing up in Canada too, and he made, like, Shivers, and he would then end up making, you know, um, The Fly and, you know, a couple other movies, and Body Horror especially, Videodrome, all that. Um, so then you have all that. And then you have a little movie called Halloween from 1978, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, uh, directed by John Carpenter, music by John Carpenter, all that. And that was a really important film for that time as well, um, because that really set a bound um, imitators, you know, uh, which in a way Scream also did after that came out. But Halloween was really kind of that one movie where it did really well and then it kind of set into motion people trying to imitate Halloween. So that's what you have with the 70s there. And then in the 80s, you have this huge boom of horror films coming out. This, I think, had to do, who knows, maybe with the culture. I was not there, so I don't completely know. But, you know, you're going through presidential change. You got Ronald Reagan, who was not exactly the most popular president. Um, so a lot going on in that culture at the time. Um, but I also think it came from the advent of home video. You know, for the 
kind of first time, uh, people could have a VCR in their house and they could actually rent and buy VHS tapes. Uh, and they could actually watch stuff at home instead of going out to the movies. It used to be that, you know, a movie would come out, you would go see it if you could, and then it would kind of not be released until maybe if it got re-released in theaters um but there was no way that it could be tangible in your hands and then when vhs came along that solved that problem so now you have people who can actually curate and own this stuff so that they are able to to um to have this fandom uh which i think also came with fandom too it, it made it that much deeper where people could have that and it's still even that to this day people talking and wanting um to hold on to physical media especially um, but yeah, the eighties had a huge boom of, um, all kinds of stuff. You know, you have, um, I would say a kind of a big one was, uh, if anything, you have a continuation to Halloween with Halloween two, Halloween three season of the witch and, you know, the subsequent sequels, but then you had nightmare on Elm street from 1984 written by our boy, Wes Craven directed by him. And that, you know, brought us Freddy Krueger. You also had Friday the 13th in 1980. That was, you know, um, an offshoot of Halloween just set in a summer camp. But it did well enough where all these sequels came out. Um, and they were pretty cheap to make. And you could get a pretty good return on your investment. So the 80s was kind of the heyday for horror. Uh, if you want to find out more about this information or a little bit more detail uh, information, you can also go, you can watch In Search of Darkness Part 1 and 2. Um, the last time I checked, they're streaming on Shudder. Or if you have AMC+, Plus, you may be able to get them in case you don't have Shudder. Because sometimes their um, content overlaps, because AMC owns Shutter. But uh, it's a documentary. It's like hours and millions of hours long. But um, they both delve into year by year different horror movies that came out at those years. And I think it's a really nice, comprehensive guide to all these movies. And then we get to the '90s, where um, you know. <laughs> at this point, uh, horror was kind of seen as this sort of cliched played out kind of genre um there weren't a whole lot of new horror directors out there coming in you know through the cut so you have some some nice little gems here and there but generally um you know even like these franchises that at one time were perfectly profitable um so if we use the just examples we had just then you know friday the 13th you know they had uh, the final Friday, Jason goes to hell, which did not do very well at all. Didn't do good financially. It was panned by critics. You have Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, coming out in, I think, 91, I believe, with uh, Breck and Meyer. Um, that didn't do very good either. And the New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which was actually kind of interesting. It was a little bit of a kind of proto scream film because it was very meta, um, very you know, into, you know, Heather Langenkamp plays her uh, a version of herself in the movie. Robert Englund plays a version of himself in the movie. Um, and it's actually not a bad movie, but it got panned by critics. Um, financially, I don't think it did as great as they wanted it to. Okay, so you have that, that, and then um, you have, you know, Halloween, you have The Curse of Michael Myers, um, which came out in 95 with our good old boy, uh, Paul Rudd. Uh, again, didn't do very well. <laughs> Uh, the Jamie Lloyd ones, I think, did all right. Um, that was Halloween 4 and 5. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the other ones, 
you know, didn't really do the best before Scream came along. But and then that's not even like mentioning all the other stuff, you know, the theatrical releases, of course. Um, but you got like Hellraiser. Um, by this point, they had Hellraiser three, um, and then Hellraiser four. I think um, I'm trying to remember. It was Bloodline. I think it was four, and then three. It was Hell on Earth or something like that. Um, I'm not like the hugest Hellraiser person, but you know, again, those sequels didn't exactly do great. Yeah, you just have a lot of different, um, you know, examples of these movies that are coming out. They're horror films. They're just not doing good. <laughs> They're not doing good at all. Um, and again, there's some gems. You have Candyman in 1992. That that did all right. That did pretty good. Um, but even the sequel again didn't do that great. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, which I some people don't consider horror. It's like a psychological thriller, but uh, I do consider it kind of a horror film because it's scary and it got some critical acclaim. But of course, you know, if a movie's getting critical acclaim, it's not seen as a horror film which I think is kind of BS, but whatever, that's just my thought. So you have that, and then you have something, even like The Craft, which came out at the same time, it came out the same year as the Scream film, 1996, and it was an original story, you know, it was about witches and stuff, and uh, it also kind of targeted this older teen audience that went and, go and, went and saw it, it got, you know, it made its money back, you know, the reviews were, if anything, but again, it was something where... Um, it, it was kind of a nice little gem that people latched onto and loved. And then also there's, of course, the fact that two of the people in the craft then ended up being in this film as well, Scream. So that's always kind of fun. But yeah, so when we're looking at, you know, the state of horror films in the 90s, this this genre was not at all popping. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. A uh, whole lot of like really bad sequels or you know kind of these direct to video things. Which for people who love direct to video, that's great. But it doesn't really make money, and it's not financially you know feasible to always make these movies all the time. Um, so that's what we're looking at in terms of what the genre of horror was looking like in the 1990s by the time this movie came out. So now that we've gone over our little history lesson, uh, we're then going to move into a little bit about how uh, Scream came to be and move into a plot summary after that. So now that we kind of know that at this uh, time, 1990s, uh, horror movies aren't exactly looking great and the state of the genre is just in a rut, then we have Enter Kevin Williamson. So Kevin Williamson is a nice young man who ended up being a gay man, um, who is from North Carolina. He lived in Texas for a bit um, and then came back to North Carolina for high school and college. He went to school for theater at East Carolina University and then uh, promptly went to New York to try to make it as an actor. But that didn't really pan out, even though he did get a small role or like some kind of part in a soap opera. He decided in 1991 he would move to L.A. Um, to try to make it as an actor out there. And also, in the meantime, try to be a screenwriter, too. So, when Kevin Williamson came out in 91 uh, to L.A., he had small roles on In Living Color, he was in a Roger Corman movie, and he was in like some music videos, apparently, and he was also taking class at UCLA for script writing. So, at this point, you know, um, he's trying to make it as a screenwriter, and all um, he writes his first script, which was calling, which was called 
killing Mrs. Tingle. Uh, and then that he was able to sell to a, a production company called Interscope Communications. But that just kind of languished in development hell uh, for a couple of years until after the success of this film, he was able to get this made um, into a movie called Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which had Helen Mirren, Katie Holmes, and Barry Watson in it. And it's not a very good film at all. It was his only, Kevin Williamson's only directorial effort. Um, And I think there's a reason why he could just stay being a, a screenwriter, maybe. But... During this time, while he had sold this this one script, but I don't think he got a ton of money for it, I guess, he was, you know, trying to make ends meet by, you know, doing some odd jobs. And one of the odd jobs he took was actually house-sitting for a friend of his. So he house-sits for this friend of his, um, and while they're out, you know, and he's house-sitting, um, he comes across, uh, late at night, he comes across this TV program, I think it was called News Story, and it was profiling a serial killer uh, from Gainesville, Florida, called the Gainesville Ripper, whose real name was actually Danny Rowling. And um, this news report was talking about how, you know, he targeted young you know, co-eds in that area of Gainesville, and he would kill them, sneak into their house and kill them, and then he would, like, uh, pose their bodies in, like, kind of macabre manners after he's killed them, he tortured them, and Kevin Williamson kind of got a little scared uh, about this, you know, he's scaring himself, and he called his friend on the phone to kind of, like, you know, make himself feel a little bit better, I guess, and then they kind of got onto the the topic of, like, well, what's your favorite scary movie in, in that kind of stuff and kevin williamson being a lifelong horror fan he decided he was like you know what like i guess i just like wrote this other play i wrote this other screenplay and you know that didn't really go anywhere it's not really doing anything um maybe i'll maybe i'll write my own like horror movie I'll do that because I'm a fan of it and I have all the, I know all the cliches, all the tropes. Let me write something that's kind of uh, comedic, but still kind of scary. So he went and took himself and wrote the, the film, which ended up becoming Scary Movie. This film, which was initially called Scary Movie, uh, it was well received for being smart, self-referential. Um, you know, his literary agents at the time were shopping it around and, um, and people really liked it. Like, they loved the draft. Um, for our first draft, it was really good. He had only, um, I think, I have three days, but I've also heard 30 days that he wrote it in, which is still pretty good um, in terms of writing an actual screenplay. And so there was a bidding war. So five, four or five studios were bidding on this movie, the scary movie script. We have Paramount, Universal, Morgan Creek, Woods Entertainment, and also Oliver Stone's production company uh, were bidding for this movie. But Kevin really, really wanted Miramax. They want he wanted them to actually really take it. Um, and Miramax at the time um, had just opened their Dimension Films label of which was kind of more genre fair, if you will, and they had just been created. And the Weinstein's read the script; they liked it. Um, so Dimension Films bought it, and they bought it for a cool $400,000. So, alright, that's awesome. Like, we got this production company who wants to do it, they're interested and excited for it. So now we gotta find a director. So now, the first choice for director for this film was none other than the one, the only, Wes Craven. But Wes Craven was offered to direct, but he 
declined because uh, he just didn't want to make another slasher movie. By this point, you know, he, of course, he had made you know iconic stuff like you know Nightmare on Elm Street, and he had made you know Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, um, and he'd done good work. Um, and he had done some other films as well. You know, by this point, he had done Serpent in the Rainbow. He had done People in the Stairs, Vampire in Brooklyn, a um, couple different things. But he just really didn't want to do another slasher film. He was getting tired of the genre a little bit. That he just kind of thought was were like cutting up girls and were misogynistic as a whole in a way. Um, you know, so he kept declining it. Other contenders for the director role was, you know, uh, Sam Raimi. This was before he became Spider-Man director. Uh, but he had already done The Evil Dead, of course. And um, he, he turned it down. And George A. Romero even, you know, was offered the director, you know, but he also didn't want to do it either. And it wasn't until Wes Craven was at a convention um, where a young fan of his came up to him and apparently told him, like, you know, you should really make another kick-ass movie. You know, some of the stuff you've been doing is, is just not as... Not as uh, not as good as you did before, you know. And he took this and he took that feedback, and he was like, you know what? Like, I guess you know these films I made before, like something somewhere, like you know, people seem to enjoy them and like them. Yeah, maybe I'll go back to it. So called up the Weinstein's and said, like, hey, if the job's still there, I'm in. And then at this point, um, when Wes Craven was brought on to direct, um, it was also attached that Drew Barrymore was going to star in the film as the main protagonist of the film, Sidney Prescott. Um, so, you know, all right, cool. We got Dimension Films going to be making this film. We got Wes Craven uh, directing. Awesome. This seems great. And we got Drew Barrymore, who was a real hot star at the time. You know, we got her in this movie who's going to lead the movie. So, you know, they're getting ready to... To go into production and about five to six weeks before production started drew barrymore changed her mind she decided that she really loved this opening scene which we'll talk about in the plot summary but she really liked this opening scene uh with uh the character of casey and she decided that she wanted to do that more so and and now they'd have to go find another sydney <laughs> And when Wes, when Wes found that out, he did almost quit, apparently, which, you know, hey, I kind of get it. But, you know, pivoted and and uh, was able to, you know, kind of make the change of like, all right, well, now Drew Barrymore is going to be in this role and now we got to find another person to play Sydney. But, you know, we'll, we'll go with it because Drew Barrymore is definitely worth it. She's a big star of the time. And it was even, I think, uh, apparently Drew Barrymore even said, like, people are going to think that I'm going to live through this whole movie because I'm in it. Um, so if I just, you know, if I do this opening scene and I'm not in the rest of the film, um, it'll be a shock for them. And it ends up being that for sure. So... Now that we have this, we're going to move into just a little bit about casting for the film as well. So now that we have Drew Barrymore out of the Sidney Prescott role, they need now, now need to fill that role with someone else. So for the part of Sidney Prescott, um, other casting options that were, you know, available, um, the people who screen tested for this role were Nev Campbell, Alicia Witt, Brittany Murphy, you did also have people like Reese Witherspoon, I don't think actually came in, but her name was tossed around. You also had uh, Millis Joan Hart in contention for it as well. And uh, Melanie Linsky, a New Zealand actress who had starred in um, 
Heavenly Creatures with Kate Winslet. Um, so all of these um, people were kind of considered, but I think it was only Alicia Witt, Brittany Murphy, Reese Witherspoon, um, and A.J. Langer from My So-Called Life. Uh, I think those were the only folks who actually did screen tests for the role. And then, of course, it went to Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell had actually been in uh, a movie earlier in 1996, uh, The Craft, directed by Andrew Fleming. Shout out Andrew Fleming and for making The Craft and also making Dick in 1999. Um but she was a TV girl. She had been a dancer for a while and because of injuries transitioned to be an actress. She had been acting in Canada for a while and she decided to come to LA to try to make it there. Um, she was on an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, actually. And uh, she came to LA and booked a job with... Uh, with the cast of Party of Five, which was a sitcom on Fox. It was like more of a family drama, if you will, um, about orphaned people um, living their lives after their parents have died. Um, it, this starred, I believe it was Nev Campbell. Uh, Lacey Chabert was the youngest daughter in that. Um, I didn't actually watch that show, but I, I know about it, if anything, just because of that. But yeah, Nev Campbell, you know, she had a really good um, control of her own emotions and being able to emote as an actress. Um, and she had been in the craft, like I said. Um, so, you know, this was her first real starring role in something um, that was like a movie. So, okay, we have Sydney. You got Billy Loomis, who's playing, um, you got, that's her boyfriend. And uh, Skeet Ulrich was kind of the only guy who was really considered uh, of the film. Actually, the guy who plays Steve in the beginning scene was considered for that role as well. Um, but it ended up going to Skeet Ulrich, who also starred in The Craft earlier in 1996. He plays um, a guy um, that Robin Tunney is into and in, you know, that whole movie. But... Um, you got Skeet Ulrich. You got Tatum Riley, who is Sydney's uh, best friend. That ended up going to Rose McGowan, wonderful Rose McGowan. Um, but other people in contention were um, Rebecca Gayhart from the Noxima commercials, and um, she had been on a couple TV shows at that point, too. Um, it's interesting, because Rebecca Gayhart and Rose McGowan would end up being in the movie Jawbreaker together in 1999, um, and then Rebecca Gayhart would end up in 1997 being in Scream 2 as a sorority sister. And also Melinda Clark was... Uh, an option as well. She was an actress who ended up being on CSI, I believe. She played a role on that, but um, she was also an actress at the time. Uh, for Stu Mocker, uh, actually, Matthew Lillard was cast in that role, but he was actually seeing his girlfriend at the time, who was a casting assistant uh, to the good old Lisa Beach for Lisa Beach, casting director extraordinaire for teen movies. Um, she cast a whole lot of different um, teen movies at the time, and she's cast um, some of these screen movies as well. But Matthew Lillard was dating a casting assistant who worked there. He, he was coming to see her at work, and Lisa Beach saw him and was like, hey, you should come in for this role. I think you'd be great for it. And so he came in and he just owned it. By that point, he hadn't really been in a whole lot. He had been in maybe oh, a TV movie or two. I think he had been in Serial Mom by this point, John Waters' film with Kathleen Turner. It's wonderful. Um, and he had been on Skate TV as a host on Nickelodeon. Um, but he really hadn't uh, kind of breaking through 
quite then. And this movie really kind of helped do that for him and, and set his career on a, a pretty good path. For Randy Meeks, uh, the role of the movie-obsessed horror geek, I empathize, um, ended up being Jamie Kennedy, but uh, it was either between him... Brecken Meyer from Clueless and other films, and also The Craft as well, um, and Jason Lee from Kevin Smith's films. Yeah, it was between them, but Jamie was able to really get it, and this really kind of set his career in motion because he then um, he had only been in Romeo plus Juliet by that point, um, and he had been a stand-up, and you know done commercials here and there, but this was really kind of um, a role where he was one of the lead characters in a way like he was a kind of supporting character if anything but um he was part of that main you know teen ensemble quote unquote if you will so we got the kids and then we got the adults uh by this point um with gail weathers uh the role was an offered to janine Garofalo, which would have been everything but you know alas heather mooney did not accept the role also, Brooke Shields was offered the role as well, but um, she didn't take it. I believe she was also in the middle of trying to have her own TV show, uh, Suddenly Susan on NBC. So it ended up going to Courtney Cox. Um, she came in audition for the role. She loved that it was against type because by this point, she had become a sort of megastar in her own right uh, on the TV show Friends. So people knew her as Monica Geller, I guess. And, uh, you know, but she didn't want to be Monica. She wanted to play against type, and it was, it was good for that. And then the role of Dewey, um, they wanted to go a little older with him, but then David Arquette came in and actually auditioned. He was going to be uh, auditioning for the kids' roles, the teenagers, but he actually wanted to read Dewey, and he really bought, brought a certain kind of innocent attitude to the role um a kind of a kind of barney fife uh energy if you will um because by that point he was actually similarly aged too i think he was even um a year younger than like skeet ulrich and jamie kennedy by this point so he's actually around the teen's age as opposed to courtney cox for example who was like a, almost a decade older than them um at that point it's very interesting how you kind of look at the casting of this as well. Yeah, that's a little bit about that. So, you know, you got the casting. Okay, great. Awesome. So now that you have, all right, you have your production company, Dimension Films. You got your director, Wes Craven. You got this awesome cast that is going to be doing this film. Um, now you got to shoot the thing. So pretty much what they did was they did go to, they were thinking of doing it in Canada to help save on money, but it's not American. And Wes Craven was like, nah, I, I don't want to do that because it's not going to, it's not going to read how I want it to. So they ended up staying in, in California, but they went to wine country up North. The official start date of the movie was April 15th, 1996. And the end date was June 8th, 1996. So, um, that was kind of the, the shoot schedule for this movie. Um, and the third act of this film took 21 nights to shoot. And a lot of it was done in Northern California, like I said. Specifically Santa Rosa, California, which is wine country. 
And there's a whole debacle. So Santa Rosa, they were going to be doing this movie. And they did do a lot of it in Santa Rosa, but they did it in other Northern California towns as well. But a kind of point of contention for this film was actually using Santa Rosa High School. Um, so Santa Rosa is where Woodsboro, a lot of these Woodsboro shots were done at, and they wanted to use Santa Rosa High School, the actual high school. But then pretty much what happened was the administration of the school thought it was fine, and they were on board with it, but then the school board had final say on actually what was going to go down with this. And pretty much um, what happened was that once they found out, once the school board found out that this was not necessarily a comedy, which they kind of thought it was supposed to be kind of like a parody spoof kind of movie, but it wasn't. It was actually kind of a legit horror movie. Um, they declined them using the school pretty much. Um, and they were like, no, this isn't good. Like, you know, um, repeated watches of this kind of content um you know it's not good for people it you know just it's a whole lot of just like i think a little bit of a of bs honestly um you know horror movies don't make killers necessarily even though there's some people who want to say that they do but it, it doesn't i don't think you know that was kind of kiboshed to use the school uh and then also the community as a whole uh, was kind of not into this use of the school either. Um, really because, you know, uh, at that time, you know, so this is 96. So recently there had just been a murder. It was a nationwide case, uh, for a girl, Polly class was her name. And she was like this 12 year old who got, um, kidnapped and murdered, um, right in a town right near Santa Rosa. I think it was Petaluma that she uh, was living and she was ended up being kidnapped and murdered. So things were really tense at this time. And again, it just kind of added to, to people's uh, kind of hesitation for this film to actually uh, be using like the school, for example, and, and things like that. So that's definitely another part, you know, of the story of, of this film. But again, I think the, um, the shots and the locations, I think are really great in this film. Um, but there was definitely some drama in the back round of this whole thing. A little bit of fun facts about, you know, the, for example, like Ghostface, who's kind of this iconic character as the killer. Um, one of the producers, I think it was Madeline, uh, Madalana, uh, she actually found the ghost face mask in a house when, um, location scouting, uh, they went to the house. Um, it was a house that was used in Alfred Hitchcock's shadow of a doubt. So this old woman was living there. She had grown children who had moved out and she had her son's room. And in the son's room, they found this like, um, kind of random mask that looked like a scream mask. It very was reminiscent of um, the painting, the scream in a way. Um, but it was this white mask with like some black on it. And they were like, Oh, okay. This looks kind of interesting. And um, they then had uh can effects, try to recreate or, or make something that was kind of like it. Cause they didn't know what, to do with the mask. They just were like, okay, here's what the mask's going to look like. Here's what it says in the script. But, you know, we're trying to figure out what does a ghost face mask look like? What is, what does that mean? And they really liked the, the look of this mask that they found at this house. Um, also, it really had no description about what ghost face wore. 
as well. Um, they were thinking, like, do we make it black? Do we make it white? If we make it white, like, we don't want the guy to look like he's in the clan or the person to look like they're in the clan. So, you know, we got to think about that. But black just ended up being a lot scarier, which I think really worked. Um, but the mask actually came from a, a company called Fun World. Um, and after the success of this movie, they were able to try to change the name and image of the trademark to Ghostface because of the success of the movie. Um, but yeah, it was just like this random little mask that they had. So it kind of worked out pretty well. So then I've kind of, I, now that I've kind of gone over some, you know, production history type stuff, uh, this movie, you know, only shot for about like, what, two-ish months or so, almost three. Um, there was a whole lot of craziness with the third act. Um, they even had shirts that said I survived one, uh, scene 118, because that's pretty much the whole third act of the movie where we're, it's taking place in um, Stu Mocker's house and there's a party going on. But now that I've kind of gone over all of that, we're then going to now move into a nice little plot summary. We open on a title card that says Scream, and then you hear uh, screaming in the background, and you see a good old landline phone that is then answered by our character, Casey Becker, played by Drew Barrymore. Uh, You hear this voice on the end of the line saying, hello, what number is this? And then Casey's asking him, like, well, what number do you want to reach? And it just seems like it's a wrong number. So, you know, she just says, take it easy. And then he calls back being like, hey, I just wanted to talk to you. I wanted to apologize. I just want to talk to you for a little bit. So this voice is done by Roger L. Jackson, um, who is also the voice of Mojo Jojo and the Powerpuff Girls. Um, but you have um, him just kind of going back and forth with her. Uh, Casey, in the meanwhile, has been uh, making, she's in the middle of making some popcorn because she's about to watch a video. And so this guy calls back and he's all like, um, oh, well, you know, I normally just see popcorn when I go to the movies. And she's like, well, yeah, I'm about to watch a video. And it's a scary movie. And then he's asking, well, what's your favorite scary movie? And then she's like, uh, Halloween. You know, the one where the babysitter stalks, uh, the, uh, the guy stalks babysitters with the mask and all that. And then talking about, like, Nightmare on Elm Street and just these other ones. And then finally you see um, Casey going over to the TV. Um, and she's talking about, you know, uh, you know, the guy on the other end of the line, he's like, you know, you never really did tell me your name. And she's like, well, why do you want to know my name? And he's like, because I want to see who I'm looking at. And then she's like, wait, what? And she, he's like, I want to know who I'm talking to. And she's like, that's not what you said. So then, um, I love that, uh, in the initial pickup of this phone call, um, Drew Braymore, uh, Casey, she says something about him talking, and she's like, uh, you know, they had 900 numbers for that, you know, goodbye. And 900 numbers, if you don't know, are like for, um, they were like for party lines back in the 90s, uh, for like phone sex lines too as well, uh, they would have 900 numbers for. And then, of course, you know, talking about what's your favorite scary movie. I'm about to watch a video, but talking about scary movie, this goes back to the fact that this movie was called Scary Movie for a time while it was being shot. But then you go into uh, this creepy guy on the phone with Casey wanting to play a game. So she's, like, locking all the doors, bitch. She's just like, ooh, girl, I don't know what to do. You know, this is scary, and she's just scared out of her wits. Um, you know, the the caller seems to be kind of messing with her. He, like, rings the doorbell, and, like, you know, he's just, like, really menacing. And she's just, like, crazy. You know, Casey's just crying and being like, well, what do you want? And he says, like, to see what your insides look like, which is, like, so freaky. This whole scene is so 
scary. <laughs> you know, this is when Casey's like, you know, you better believe because my boyfriend will be here any minute and, you know, he's big and he plays football and he'll kick the shit out of you. So you better just be gone. And then, you know, the guy on the phone's like, ooh, yeah, I'm shaking in my boots, you know. And his name wouldn't be Steve, would it? And, she, and you, Casey's like, oh, girl, how did you know his name? And then uh, she had already turned the patio lights on before to kind of take a look at what was outside. And then she turns them on again. And then Steve is in a chair, tied up, bitch, with, like, uh, this uh, duct tape over his mouth. This guy is played by um, Kevin Patrick Walls, who apparently was actually close to getting the role of Billy. He actually auditioned for it, but... Ooh, yeah, so, like, she sees her boyfriend out there, and she's just like, oh, my man's out there. Like, oh, no, what are you going to do to him? Like, this is horrible. So then, uh, you know, the guy on the phone's like, well, I want to play a game. Play a trivia game. We'll start easy. It's movie trivia. Yeah, it was like something, you know, name the killer from Halloween. Be like, you know, oh, it's it's one of your favorites. Come on, remember. And she's like, Michael. And then, you know, he's like, correct, good. And then he's all like, you know, um, now it's time for the real question. She's just like, no, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And Drew Barrymore, baby, is she is just doing so good um, in this role. It's so good. But anyway, um, you got the actual question that this guy asks, which is, name the killer in Friday the 13th. And, you know, Casey's just like, Jason, Jason, I know that. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. And then, you know, the guy also then says, like, well, then you should have known that Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, you know, Pamela Voorhees, uh, she was the actual killer in the first Friday the 13th. He didn't show up. Jason didn't show up till the sequel. And he got her. You know, well, Steve dies. He gets disemboweled. And uh, it's just, like, really gross and disgusting. And, um... Then, you know, hey, I'm not done. And then, you know, I have another question for you. And, you know, if you answer right, I might let you live. And he's asking, what door am I at? And it's just, like, really freaky and scary. So then you have, you know, the whole chase scene. So, you know, Casey is, like, running for her life. She, like, went and got, like, a knife from the kitchen. And she's just like, bitch, I'm trying to live in here. I'm trying to live. I'm trying to live my life. And then she sees, like, this guy, like, running through the, um through her living room and all this stuff and she sneaks out the back door and so she sneaks out this back door and she like goes and she sees her babe like in this um pool chair or whatever and she's just like oh god i gotta get out of here and then you know she then sneaks 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 and she sneaks up to a window and the killer's right there and she, he tries to like get her or whatever and she's like running and all this the killer then like jumps out this window where he like you know uh tackles her and then she's like putting up a fight she like kicks him in the balls or what's to be his balls i guess and so then she's just like trying to run but he catches up with her and he like stabs her in the shoulder which is like so horrible and then you're just like oh no girl you're not gonna live and then she's really putting up a fight though because she's trying and she sees like her uh this car coming down and it's like coming in and it's her parents and she sees her parents on the porch and they're talking to each other but they don't notice her it's a whole thing y'all and then they go up in the um they go up in the house her parents go up in the house uh her mom and dad are played by a guy named david booth and a woman named carla hatley um but anyway so like you know they're up in there but they know something's wrong because like you know the popcorn is like burnt to hell and like there's all this smoke in the house and then obviously like a chair got thrown through their patio doors um and uh, then you know casey that baby she just you know pulls the mask off of the guy she doesn't know who it is but i guess she kind of recognizes him i guess and he just like kills her and all the while because you know the parents know something went wrong and you know the dad's like call the police 
he's like, go down in the McKenzie's, call the police, all this. And then, you know, the mom's trying to call the police, but then she hears her daughter on the other end because she had that phone with her the whole time. And I was like, oh, this is horrible. But anyway, so yeah, you know, the Friday the 13th thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the dad's like, you know, all right, go down to the McKenzie's, like, you know, all that. And then the mom is about to go down to the McKenzie's. She opens the door and she sees, like, at this uh, tree that her daughter is just, like, hanging there all dead and disemboweled. And it's so, so sad. I think this is interesting because they have... Drew Barrymore in this movie, who comes from a famous family, she was a child actor, she'd been through some things, you know, party girl, going to rehab, all that stuff, um, but it's interesting that they have this character who's from a famous family, um, she's a famous actress, uh, but then also it's like, you know, you could say that that's sort of a, a nod to Halloween because Jamie Lee Curtis was the daughter, uh, you know, is the daughter or was the daughter of Janet Lee, who was in Psycho. So there's all these kind of nods going on. So there's that. And the Mackenzies, of course, if you've seen the original Halloween, that's the name of the neighbors down the street that, you know, the um, Laurie Strode is all like, I want you to go to the Mackenzies. I want you to tell them to call the police. But yeah, no, our baby Casey, she's dead, 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 dead. And so then we cut to another scene where we see our girl, Sydney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell, and uh, she's typing on her computer on DOS, and, you know, she hears a little something, you know, but she doesn't really think anything of it, and then she goes up to her window because she hears another noise, and then boom, bitch, like, her uh, her boyfriend, Billy, played by Billy um, Skeet Ulrich, he, like, jumps in through her window, and she screams, and she's just like, oh, no. And so, like, what are you doing here? Do you know what my dad will do to you? Uh, anyway, so her dad is all like, you know, um, hey, I thought I heard screaming. Like, what's what the heck's going on in here? Yeah, she's all like, you know, can you knock? Like, you know, and she has it set up where, like, the her door and her closet door, like, hit each other. So, like, that's the way that she has a lock, I guess, or, you know, can get some privacy a little bit. But anyway, so, yeah, they have that whole thing. And Sid's dad is talking to her and talking about how he's going to an expo. And, you know, he's leaving in the morning. So, like, you know, I'll be, you know, um, I'll be back on Sunday or whatever. Uh, what I want to know is that when you see this house, and you see this, how expansive and nice this house is, I'm like, listen, like, what does this guy do for a living? Like, Jesus Lord, because it's a nice house. But anyway, so then you have um, the next scene where, you know, Skeet Ulrich is there, Billy's there, and he's talking to Sydney, and he's all like, you know, I was watching The Exorcist, and it was edited for TV, all the good stuff was cut out. Two years ago, it used to be hot and heavy, but now we're just edited for content. Yeah, you see all this kind of going on, and I will say, Billy's hair looks so gross in this whole movie. I don't know what was going on with it, but, like, I don't know. It just, mm, that hair person needed to, to get a talking to, because he just, it, maybe it was part of it, or whatever, but I don't, he just looked, yeah, he didn't look good. This whole thing where, you know, Billy then leaves, but then before he leaves, you know, um, Sydney flashes him, gives him a little peek. So then you have, um... This tracking shot where you see the high school, uh, Woodsboro High School. This is in Woodsboro, California. And so you see this, like, dramatic music sting, Marco Beltrami with his score. And he's all like, you know, um, so there's a tracking shot where we see there's, like, reporters. And this whole bunch of shit's going on. And we see Sydney looking like a legend. And so then... 
she's walking up to school. She's just like, what the heck? And in the background, one of the people in the, um, one of the reporters is actually Linda Blair, uh, which is funny because they were just talking about the exorcist. So it's funny that Linda Blair literally plays one of the, the reporters. Um, and then we get introduced to our girl, Tatum Riley, played by the one and only Rose McGowan. Love her. Um, and she is wearing this like, uh, yellow shirt and like this little, um, what is it like a little skirt or whatever she's blonde uh the reason that she's blonde is because apparently they can't have two brunettes because normally uh rose began had black hair pretty much all the time and she was more of dark hair and then pretty much like she had to dye her hair blonde um she went to she went to kathy conrad's stylist apparently her colorist who was the one of the producers of the movie but anyway so that all happens it's cute and so they're walking to school and, you know, Tatum's kind of filling her in being like, yeah, Casey Becker and Steve Orth were, you know, killed last night. Um, and then Sydney's all like, oh, she, she like sat next to me in English. Be like, Well, now she's not. And so, you know, they're talking, talking, be like, nobody knows what's going on. Like, you know, and nobody knows. And they're saying it's the worst crime they've had in a while. It's even worse than... Well, it's bad. So that's setting up to, like, there's something else that bad that happened. So then we go to the uh, the school scene. Uh, we go into a classroom where Sydney is sitting, where she's looking at Casey's now empty desk. She's just like, oh my god, what the hell? So then she goes and she's told to go to the principal's office where they're now all questioning um, everybody in the school, pretty much. And they're all like, you know, how did you know this person? What did you know? And so, this is our introduction to Principal Hembry, played by an uncredited uh, role of um, Henry Winkler, also known as the Fonz from Happy Days. We also get introduced to Sheriff Burke, played by Joseph Whip, who um, had actually been playing, he played a cop in Nightmare on Elm Street, but he's like the, de- uh, the sheriff of this town. And then we also get introduced to Deputy Dewey Riley, Dwight Dewey Riley, um, played by David Arquette. And you can see that um, the police kind of already know Sydney a little bit. You can see that um, Sydney calls Dewey Dewey when, you know, it's it's Deputy you know, Riley today, Sid, um, because we will then find out that that is actually Tatum's older brother. So yeah, we have this, and then we get into this scene where it's this um, it's this fountain shot where you have all the kids there. So you got Skeet Ulrich, you got Billy there, you got Nev Campbell, you got um, Sydney there, you got Stu Mocker, who's a friend of theirs, played by Matthew Lillard. You have Rose McGowan, you got um, Tatum Riley there, and then you got Randy Meeks, played by Jamie Kennedy there, and they're all just kind of sitting around chatting. Somebody talks about, like, you know, I think Stu says something about, like, it takes a man to you know, be able to do something like that to somebody. And then, you know, Tatum's all like, hello, have you seen Basic Instinct? It might you know, be just you have to have the mind of a man or whatever. And so, you know, you have that whole scene and you have, like, you know, them just kind of shooting the shit and talking. And, you know, Jamie Kennedy does, like, this bad impression of, like, Jerry Lewis or something where he's like, uh, did you hear, uh, I heard that they found her living in the mailbox with her spleen and her pancreas or whatever. And so that was just kind of rude and gross. But anyway, so Sydney's just, like, going through it. She's just feeling a certain way. She's like, how do you gut somebody? Stu is, like, talking about it a little bit. And then Billy's just like, it's called tacky fuck rag, you know, kind of a thing like that. But anyway, so then you have that scene where they're talking at the fountain and all that. You're getting a little bit of like how these kids talk to each other. I think then you have a scene where after that, Sydney is like on the bus or something. 
well, she's not. Act- she's getting off the bus to go to her house, and so she checks the. Uh, it's funny. She checks the mailbox, which I um, in the commentary track. I think Wes Craven said something about like it was kind of funny that she checked the mailbox, especially since like the scene before was talking about how they found her liver in the mailbox or whatever. You have that. So Sydney just walks up to her palatial goddamn house that she has in like wine country, which is amazing. Um, still, what does he do for a living? Like Jesus Lord. Anyway, so she has the nicest goddamn house ever, and so she is just, like, you know, up and she's uh, talking to Tatum over the phone, she's, like, outside, walking up her palatial mansion, and so, um, Sydney's talking about, like, you know, just with, like, all the reporters and the cameras and all that, it's just, you know, um, it just feels a lot, you know, more, it feels a lot, it feels too familiar, you know what I mean? And so we're kind of like, what the heck, girl, like, what's going on? But then we see a scene where, uh... You know, Sydney's getting ready. She's getting her uh, sleepover stuff together because they were talking about, like, oh, hey, since your dad's out of town, like, you know, you can come stay over my house. You know, she's talking to Tatum and all. And so you see her with her school, with her clothes that she's going to wear the next day. And she goes to the closet. She looks for something, but she's not really looking in there a whole lot. And she's just like, okay, cool. So then I'm going to go over and she sits on the couch in her, like, little living room or whatever. It's like a weird living room kitchen kind of duo thing. And she turns on the TV, and actually one of the reporters, because she just keeps seeing news reports, one of the reporters on the TV is actually casting director Lisa Beach. She made a little cameo in there. Um, but she then gets this intro, which we already got a little bit of an intro to this character, but we then actually see uh, our girl Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox at that time. Um, she was, she is a reporter. She is talking about, you know, how this whole thing happened with Casey and Steve. But, you know, a year before, Maureen Prescott, mother and wife, was, you know, brutally murdered in this place or whatever as well. And then so that's when you realize, oh, shit, like, you know, Maureen Prescott was killed a year before. We then see that Sydney gets up. She hears a noise, but she doesn't think much about it. And she then goes over to, like, this other couch that they have. And she, you see that there's a um, picture of her and her mom. You see that Maureen Prescott was her mother. So... We now get the idea that, like, Sydney is pretty much dealing with the death of her mom, which is, like, really sad, and especially since she was murdered, and she falls asleep. She falls asleep for, like, 30 minutes, and now it's dark, and so then, um, when it's all dark, she hears the phone ring, and she's all like, you know, hello, and it's Tatum, she's like, practice ran late, you know, I'm coming over right now, I thought we could swing by the video store and, like, pick up a movie to watch, you know, I was thinking, uh, Tom Cruise and all the right moves, you know, if you cause it just right, you can see his penis, um, then he gets off the phone with Tatum, and then it rings again, um, and then you hear the same creepy voice that you heard with Casey, and he's just, you know, talking to her about you know she's talking to sydney about like you know what with all the murders and all and how spooky it is it's right out of a horror movie and then she's thinking like okay randy yeah i get it you know oh is you know are you at work right now because tatum's on her way over and you know her and the creepy voice are just talking more and more and you know she still thinks it's randy putting on a voice but then the voice is all like i'm not randy and so then she's like oh okay and so you know you know, Sydney's talking to him, and, and, you know, I think it, he makes some kind of 
illusion for the fact that like he's watching her and she's like okay yeah well i'll call your bluff where are you right now your front porch all right i'll call your bluff so she comes out of her house on her like palatial ass veranda and she uh is like can you see me right now and he's like yeah and he's um she's all like ah okay and she just like starts kind of picking her nose she's like what am i doing what am i doing and she's just like not taking it seriously at all and then she's like nice try randy like you know see ya goodbye and then the guy just is all like you know you hang up on me you know and i'll gut you like your mother or whatever do you want to die sydney your mother sure didn't and then she's all like fuck you you cretin she comes back in her house and then the fucking um and then Ghostface comes out of the, the closet and is all, like, you know, trying to, like, kill Sydney pretty much. But she's, like, putting up a fight or whatever. And at that point, uh, before this, she has this conversation about, like, you know, oh, come on, you know I don't watch that shit. And be like, you know, oh, are you scared? It's like, well, no. Like, you know, they're all the same. Like, you know, some big-breasted actress is, you know, run, uh, is going up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. It's insulting, you know? And so then, you know, she then runs up the stairs because she doesn't open the front door. Um, So she's like, you know, but she's putting up a fight. And so she's trying to, like, get up on here. So she runs into a room. She does the same trick from before where she puts her closet in her little door. So, like, you know, the guy can't get right in. But I don't think they were actually going to kill Sydney. They just kind of want to, like, ruffle her feathers a little bit. So then, you know, she's all, like, on her computer. And she's, like, dialing in 911. And the 911's like, what's your emergency? Where the hell is this technology? Because even in 2022, I still don't see it. But whatever. You have all this, maybe it was for the hearing impaired or whatever, but I was like, girl, I had never seen this in my life. So then, you know, the killer's gone away, like, he's not there anymore, and so then you see Billy boo in the fucking window again, um, and she's all like, like, why does he do that? But, like, anyway, whatever. So he just, like, comes up, and how does he even do it? Anyway, that's what I want to know, but, like, whatever, regardless. But, uh, so she, he comes through the window, and he's all like, it's okay now, I'm here, you know? And then his son phone drops out of his like pants or something and she's all like what the hell do you have a cell phone for and so then um because you know she had used this 911 technology i guess uh she then like runs and she's just like oh no like this guy's trying to kill me and so then she runs to her front door and then dewey is standing there with the uh the ghost face mask and he's just like they both scream and it's kind of a funny scene a little bit but then uh Billy gets taken by the police and, you know, they have to take him in for questioning and they got to like, you know, deal with that. Uh, you know, Sydney's alone. She's frightened. She's scared. And so, you know, the ambulance came to because, you know, she just like fought off this killer who she doesn't even fucking know who it is. And so, you know, then you have, um, so you got Dewey there, you got, uh, I think the Sheriff Burke's there, and, like, some other police officers are there, too. They take Billy away, and so then, you know, Dewey and, like, I think Sheriff Burke and all them are just, like, with Sydney at the ambulance. And then Tatum uh, pulls up her little bug, her little red bug is so cute. I love her car. And she's all like, you know, hey, Sydney, like, you know, um, this is where we actually find out that that's her... Um, that Dewey is Tatum's brother. This is where we literally find out. Although you could have also assumed that like when we first meet Tatum, cause she says something about Dewey said this. So again, we didn't know Dewey until like a few seconds after that, but still, you know, it's all there anyway. So then Gail Weathers arrives on the scene with her, um, her cameraman, 
Kenny, who's played by, um, he is played by W. Earl Brown, who had been in Vampire in London, uh, no, Vampire in Brooklyn, I'm sorry, Vampire in Brooklyn, uh, another Wes Craven film, and he had also been in New Nightmare as well, he was the morgue attendant. But Gail arrives on the scene, she's trying to get what's going on, and, you know, you could just tell, like, okay, like, there's something going on here, uh, nobody wants to talk to Gail, and, you know, you have, like, the line of, you know, um... Like, Tatum kind of gives her some snark, and she, like, goes away. You're a real pain in my ass. Leave Sid alone. And then Kenny comes up to Gail, and he's like, you know, oh, what are we doing? What's going on? And then good old Gail's just like, Kenny, I know you're about 50 pounds overweight, but when I say move, take that as move your fat tub of lard ass now. And so you can just kind of see what woman we're dealing with when we're talking about Gail. She doesn't give a shit about anybody except herself and her career. Um, so that's what we kind of get. But we don't quite know, you know, well, all we know is that Gail's trying to get the story, but we don't know much more than just that. But then we're going to find out some other stuff soon. Uh, so then, you know, for her own safety, you know, uh, Sydney is brought to the police station. They're trying to look up to see, you know, what's going on. So they try to look up Sid's dad, but apparently, um, you know, they tried seeing where he was registered, but like, apparently Sid's dad is not registered at the Hilton near the airport or whatever. Which I don't know how they, I guess they looked that up or they found that information, so... I don't really know why he wasn't registered there, like, but again, it's to move the plot along. We don't really get an answer, but, you know, that's what it is. We then also find out, I guess, that Gail works for a San Francisco, like, affiliate network, I guess. Like, she, because I think, like, on her news truck or whatever, like, it says something about San Francisco. So, like, you know, we're to assume that I guess this is, like, probably near San Francisco, I guess. Like, if we're or assuming this all takes place in Northern California, like, that's up in Northern California, so I guess that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, you know, like, there's some craziness going on because, you know, Sydney is, like, um, you know, there's just all this stuff going on. People are finding out that this has happened. Um, but then they're like, okay, you know, we gotta, I gotta get out of here. Um, so then you see Tatum's there. You see Sydney's at the police station. Um, and they're looking to see, like, if they can find, like, you know, Sydney's dad, like, where he's he at. Um, but then, you know, uh, they're like, okay, well, you know, we got to get out of here, so let's leave. So Dewey actually gets, um, he's helping for Sid and Tatum to get out of there, um, to kind of take Sid back to, to their house. So Dewey, like, gets the car, he, like, goes and gets the, um, like, a police car or whatever. He's going and getting that, and they, they take the back way out of the police station, because there's, like, a bunch of camera news people, because they're all trying to cover all this shit going on. And so then, Gail Weathers is there, she's trying to, like, get in there, she's like, hi, Gail Weathers reporting for this, you know, blah, blah. And so, you know, she's not allowed in, but she's just like, alright, well, I'll, you know, I'll do you one better, and I'll I'll go around and I'll go and see if I can get this scoop or whatever. So then you see Sydney and Tatum and Dewey, they're going out the back way and they're all trying to like leave. And so Dewey's getting the car and then uh, Sid and Tatum are there. And then Gail Weathers just comes barged in. And so then, you know, Gail's just like, what happened tonight? Da da da. And then, you know, Tatum's just like, girl, go away. Like, leave me, leave us alone. But then, you know, Sydney's just like, no, Gail. Like, no, Tatum, you know, she's just doing her job. Isn't that right, Gail? And so this is when you're finding out that, like, there's a little bit more about what's going on between Sydney and Gail because apparently there is some, you know, history there. How's the book? And it's like, oh, like, this book is, you know, it's great. 
be like, oh, I'll look for it. And be like, I'll send you a copy. And then Sydney just punches her in the face, which is, like, marvelous. But I don't think we actually, we only get a little bit of, like, you know, the specifics of, like, we'll get the specifics in a minute, but, like, you know, all we know is that, okay, there's some animosity between these two women, so that's all we know. And just, like, boom, like, you know, she went down. So then Tatum and Sid are at um, Tatum's house, the Dewey, you know, the Riley residence, and uh, Tatum is there. She's with, like, her little, like, uh, bunny that she has. She's, like, in her little pigtails or whatever, and she's just like, I'll send you a copy. Bam! Uh, you know, I'll send you a copy. Bam! Sid, super bitch. And she's, like, being a real cool hype man, which is great. Anyway, so then, um, you know, Tatum's in there. Tatum's mom comes in. She's all like, hey, girl, like, you know. Or I think Dewey might come in, actually. Dewey comes in, and then she he uh, gives some frozen vegetables uh, so that, you know, Sid can, like, nurse her knuckles. And so I always kind of wonder, like, why does Tatum have two beds in her room? She has, like, two twin-sized beds, but, like whatever yeah it's none of my business but anyway so you see this and then you see uh tatum's mom come in she says hey phone's for you sid and and she's like oh is my dad like oh you know i didn't get that so then she goes out and she answers the phone and then it's the killer it's this guy and be like oh no and then he's talking about like you know you fingered the wrong guy again and then you're like, ooh, what is going on? What is this story going on? So then, you know, they're all, like, freaking out. They're just like, ooh, girl, like, what is going on? So then, you know, the the phone call and all that ends. And then, like, Dewey is, like, there. And he's just like, hello. And it's just, like, a really kind of silly scene. But, yeah, no. So then you go from there. So then we're alluding that, like, he she fingered the wrong guy again, which is, first off, a really interesting way of saying it, um, kind of, sort of. But, like, also, we're about to learn what that actually means um, in this next scene. So then you have Sid and Tatum going to school. They get dropped off by Dewey. They're like, this is school, Sid. Like, you'll be safe here. You see Tatum and Sid walking into school. But before that, she sees Gail Weather in her little news van she's like i gotta walk over here and do this um and so like sid goes over by herself gail she's all like you know don't come any closer and you know she's like i just want to talk to you i think we need to talk and like off the record like don't bring your cameraman in here with you i will also say tatum's outfits are so good in this they are not realistic whatsoever but i don't care they look great but anyway so you get this whole kind of backstory where you learn about, like, hey, like, you wrote this book about the Woodsboro murder of my mother, pretty much, and you're saying that I was a liar, pretty much. You're saying that I I had the wrong guy, because by this point, before this, actually, yeah, before they get to school, you see them having breakfast, and you see that they're watching a news report about, you know, uh, what's been going on, but then you see that... Um, Cotton Weary is this guy, so that's who they were alluding to if you fingered the wrong guy, was that Cotton Weary is accused of killing Maureen Prescott. Um, And so that's when you learn all of that. But anyway, so they're at school, she goes up to to Gail, and she's all like, hey, we need to talk, like, you know, you called me a liar. Be like, yeah, I thought you, I think you identified the wrong man, you know. You saw somebody leave with his jacket, but you didn't see necessarily Cotton leave with it. Because Gail has talked to Cotton, 
Cotton. His story's still the same. He confesses to having an affair with Maureen and all that. You're saying that it was Cotton who killed your mom, but I am saying that it's not. Um, and so there's like this intricate backstory going on, which I thought was really interesting. And yeah, it's just kind of showing that. It's showing that animosity and just like that conflict between Sid and Gail, which I thought was just really good. Um, and then, you know, Tatum comes up to to the situation. She's just like, nice welt, honey. Nice welt, sweetie. And so then they go to school, finally. And then so, like, then Gail Weathers is all like, oh, hey, like, you know, a man's on death row. Like, do you know, you know, I if this works out, like, I could save a man's life. Uh, she's talking to Kenny about it. And she's just like, do you know what that'll do for my book sales? And so then you see uh, inside the school, so you see Sydney, Tatum, and Stu, they're at the lockers. Um, and so then, you know, Sydney's talking about, like, you know, has you have you seen Billy? Like, I haven't seen him in a minute. Um, you know, I haven't talked to him since he got booked or whatever. And um, then I think Stu says something about, like, since you branded him the Candyman? No, he's been fine. Um, so that's another horror movie kind of reference. And then you see some dick just, like, uh, running down the hall in a ghost face and mask and all that. And so then, you know, Sydney's just not into it. She just, like, walks away and she's just, like, all that. But she runs into Billy at school. And so then they have this conversation about just like, you know, hey, remember I, I was at the, I was at, you know, the police last night, you know, I, I wasn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't have done anything. Like the guy called you again, but like, I wasn't there. Like, how could you think I'm a killer? And honestly, during this whole conversation, so they're pretty much talking about like, you know, I think you need to start getting over, you know, your mom's death. Sid. It's always, it's been a almost a year since this has happened and you haven't gotten over it. I understand like, you know, when my mom left my dad, like I, you know, she left out of my life, but like I accepted it and moved on. And then, you know, freaking Sid's like, is your brain leaking? Like my mom is dead. Like this is not the same thing. You know, what the hell? And so like your mom's not lying in a coffin somewhere. Um, you know, it's not the same thing at all. And then she's talking about like, I'm sorry that, you know, I'm a blip on your perfect existence. She just walks away. She walks into the bathroom and then Billy's all like, nobody even said anything about that. But here's the thing though. I do think like Billy is being kind of a dick here. I think at least cause I'm just like, listen, like I understand like everyone grieves differently. So like the thing is, is that you're telling her to like, you know, get over her mom's death. And it's like, I mean, people grieve in all different ways. And yet at some point she obviously has dealt with the fact that her mom was literally viciously murdered, but like, come on now, like, don't be a dick dude. Uh, and then also trying to compare your own kind of thing when your mom was like, divorced your dad or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's not exactly the best thing, but he did say like, it's a bad analogy, whatever. So I say Billy's a dick and dump him, but she doesn't dump him. Uh, and then also, what kind of perfect existence? Because he does say, like, nobody even said that, but, like, what kind of perfect existence does he have? He just said he came from, like, a divorced home, you know what I mean? So it's like, obviously his stuff's not perfect. So then you see this, uh, Sydney went into the bathroom, you know, she's looking all cute and stuff, and so then she hears these two girls talking about, you know, in the bathroom, and so she's like, ooh, bitch, I gotta hide in the stall. So she hides in the stall, and then these girls are just talking shit about her, pretty much. They're just like, you know, um, I don't think she was attacked at all, da-da-da-da-da. And so one of them, the cheerleader girl, you know, she's talking about, like, 
maybe she's a slut, like her mother. She's like, maybe this is what happened. Like, you know, she's all suicidal. Where's God? You know? And then she decides that, you know, teen suicide is out this year and homicide is a much more therapeutic expression. And then her friend is all like, where do you get this shit? She says, Ricky Lake, which is kind of a dated, you know, uh, reference, but I think I love that though. And then her friend's just like, you are pathetic. Pathetic. Um, which this little scene is so silly and funny in a very dark way. Um, but yeah, so then, you know, Sydney's all like, you know, girl, they're talking shit about me. So then, you know, she comes out the, um, the stall. She looks herself in the mirror. She's like, pathetic. So then she's all like, you know, looking under and she's just like, she's hearing a noise or two. She's just like, is someone there? And so then, you know, you have this whole scene, and then somebody, boo bitch, like, is trying to, like, kill you pretty much. And so then she's just, like, running out there, and she runs out of there. Um, and she actually runs, like, down the stairs and probably out of the school, honestly, I would. Then you have the scene where doing Gail meet. So Gail's walking up and she's just like, you know, do you have any information? Blah, blah, blah. And she meets Dewey, and she's all like, hey, Dewey, you know, or. Yeah, she's just, like, meeting him for the first time, and so you seem awfully young to be a police officer, and be like, I'm 25 years old. Oh, well, my demographic, you know, I do well between uh, the ages of eight, uh, males, ages 18 to 24. So they have their whole little moment of meeting. That might happen before the uh, bathroom chase scene, but I think bathroom chase scene actually happens first. Uh, so then doing Gale meet, and then they have their little first meeting, which is kind of cute. Then you see Principal Hembree. Um, he's, like, there, and and he's also there because um, I think it was earlier, or it might be around the scene, that he uh, has these two guys who were like scaring the shit out of people with the ghost face stuff. And he's all like, you pathetic, whatever. He has this whole like monologue. Uh, he has these scissors. He's just like using them and he's just like looking threatening as hell, actually. And so then you're like, oh, okay. So he like wants to expel these guys or whatever. He'd be like, get out of here. Da-da-da. So then you have that whole scene. Then you have the scene. I think it was after they meet, or doing, doing Gale meet, and uh, you have the scene where, like, Principal, Principal Henry has, like, the, um, he has the, the ghost face mask on, and he's like, meh. And then, you know, uh, nobody's really in the office a whole lot, but he's, like, hearing some noises, and then he's like, what the hell, what is going on here? So then, you know, he goes out into the hall, and he's just like, what the hell, what's going on? And then, you know, he goes out there, you see this janitor, and that's Wes Craven in, like, the Freddy getup, and uh, he's like, what'd you call me? He's like, not you, Fred. So then, you know, Principal Henry goes back, and he's, like, going through his little administration office, and then he goes back into his actual office, where he closes the door, and, bitch, Ghostface is behind there, and he kills him, and then there's, like, this really cool shot of, like, Ghostface's mask in his eye after he's getting killed or whatever. So, yeah, so, Principal's dead. So then you see, um, so, before all this, I think it was during Gale and Dewey meeting, and before his murder, unfortunately, Principal Hembree was like, due to the events of what's going on right now, uh, all classes are canceled until further notice. So then all the people are leaving school and everything. So you have this whole um, kind of like people are leaving. So you see Sydney and Tatum walk in. Um, they're talking about like, oh, you know, that whole thing in the bathroom is probably just some guy being a dick and all that. And so uh, Stu comes up and he's all like, you know, Skiz uh, it is Kizul because Skizul is 
is out or whatever. And so they're just walking, walking and be like, you know, a little, let's have a little siesta tonight, you know, to kind of pay respects to like celebrate, you know, having this time off or whatever. And so, you know, he picks up Tatum and all this and it's just like really silly. And so, you know, they're like, all right, whatever, we'll do it. It might be a good time. Let's do it. You know, okay, you get the groceries and then, you know, freaking, uh, what's his name? Stu is just like, mm, yeah. And so then you have a scene where Sydney and Tatum, uh, and I think even before this a little bit, there might have been this whole, what was it? It was like this whole sort of uh, scene of people just like getting ready to like kind of close down. There's this curfew going on around Woodsboro. But there is a scene. It's after Percival Henry's been murdered and all that stuff. He's already been murdered. Uh, where Sydney and Tatum are on Tatum's porch. Uh and Tatum's porch, and so they're on there, and they're talking, and she's like, because they're talking about, like, you know, well, if I didn't, because I think it's probably spurred from the earlier conversation with, with Gail, of, like, you know, if I didn't identify the right guy, like, you know, like, if he did have a an affair with my mom, like, how come he couldn't prove it in court? And then Tatum's all like, well, you can't really prove a rumor. That's why it's a rumor. It goes, she's talking about like, you know, it goes further back than that, Sid. You know, there's talk of other men. Maybe your mom was just a really unhappy woman. And Sid's like, and, and that's what you believe, right? And Tatum's like, well, you know, you can only hear that Richard Gere gerbil story so many times before you have to start believing it. Uh, Sydney has this really like little thing where he's like then the killer's still out there like you know if i if i got the wrong guy like the killer's still out there and then you know tatum's all like ugh, like come on now like you know you're sounding like a west carpenter flick or whatever which is west craven and john carpenter put together which i think was really funny so then you have jamie kennedy got randy meeks working at the video store he's talking to matt um lillard he's talking to just um stew about, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, and if they watch Prom Night, they'd save time. Um, and then some girl comes up and is all like, where's that werewolf movie with E.T.'s mom? And then, <laughs> then Jamie, uh, Kennedy's, uh, Randy's all like, uh, it's the howling horror straight ahead. And so then you see Billy and, um, Randy talking and, you know, if Sid leaves Billy, you know, do you think you should go out with me? And then like, you know, Stu's all like, <laughs> No, no, I don't. And so then Stu and Billy kind of intimidate Randy, what's going on, and be like, you know what, I think you're the killer. And, you know, all of this. So you have that whole kind of exchange in the video store, and, you know, Randy just being his, like, eccentric-ass self. So you see that scene, and then you have the scene where Sid and Tatum go shopping for the party later that night. So they're getting, like, you know, a bunch of, like, chips, Doritos, Tostitos, all that stuff. And then you see that Ghostface is, like, somehow in the market, but he's, like, Un, he's like undiscovered by anybody which is really weird so then you see that uh i think this is actually the scene where you see people starting to get you know wind down and they're you know getting ready and the curfew and the closing up and everything which has red right hand up a nick cave it was uh you know behind that which is really good and they have the uh they pull up to the sheriff station i think it was i think what it was is that it was actually um before Sh tatum and Sid goes shopping, they are dropped off around this area and they go off on their separate ways 
because Dewey's going to go into the sheriff's station. So they have like a little comment about like, wow, this place is like the um, town that dreaded sundown, which is another horror movie kind of like uh, reference. And then you have a comment of like, just imagine Sid, like if this gets turned into a movie, you could have some A-list actor playing you. Be like, you know, if I have any luck, my I have Tori Spelling play, Tori Spelling playing me. And then you see a scene between Dewey and um, Sheriff Burke, where like Sheriff Burke is smoking a cigarette and like um, Dewey is like eating ice cream and they're talking and they're talking about how like all those calls that came in uh, to like Sid and Casey, like they're from Neil Prescott's phone. And so, you know, there's a whole thing with that, you know, we're trying to cross reference and we're trying to like, you know, see what's going on, but like it's looking kind of weird. Like maybe it was like something, you know, that Maureen's Prescott's murders just, you know, happened a year ago. Like maybe something's going on, you know, you have that whole scene. Uh, I like the kind of comparison of just like, you know, Dewey's eating ice cream while his like, um, boss is on a smoke break, which I thought was kind of funny. So there's that. And then you see, this is when we get into the famous pretty much scene 118, which is like the whole third act of the movie. So you see Dewey driving Sid and Tatum to the party. So it's like at night they're driving and Gail, I think is following behind them. And so, um, you see them and then they get dropped off, you know, so they go into the party. So Sid and Tatum go into the party. So Sid's behind Tatum and then Tatum's all like, "Mm, Hey, what's up? Party's here. And so then, you know, you see, I think, uh, Dewey is, like, kind of sitting out in the squad car a little bit, because he's still, uh, I think tasked with, like, watching and seeing what's going on at the party, because, you know, people know about it, but then Gail comes up, and, you know, her and Dewey talk again, and so, you know, oh, hey, like, you know, I guess I'll go into the party, so they, they go into the party, Dewey and Gail go in the party, and, you know, people are like, holy shit, you'll never believe it's the chick from Top Story, and all that, and, you know, Dewey's just like, hey, I'm here too. And so then, like, Tatum's all like, Dewey, like, what the hell are you doing here? And also, what are you, like, what is she doing here? Like, Sid's here. Like, so then Gail, you know, is, like, meeting all the young people and all this, and they're just like, oh my god, I love your show, all this. And so then Gail is pretty much sneaking a camera in there, and she's just like, well, it's been great. Gotta go, fellow kids. Uh, So then she leaves, and then, um, then Dewey leaves after her. Then you find out that, um, you know, you go back to the news van, so that's when Gail goes back to the news van, and she's all like, you know, um, all right, cool, we got picture, we got sound, but we're on a 30-second delay, so, you know, we're not getting everything in real time, but we're at least on a delay. And then there's, like, a Jamie Lee Curtis comment where, you know, they're talking about, like, um... She won this for Terror Train. And then, you know, Sydney's talking about something where she's like, The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train. Why why is Jamie Lee Curtis in all of these movies? Um, So that's kind of fun. And then I think there was another scene as well. It was a little earlier or something. It was part of it where, like, um, Stu's all like, to Tatum, he's like, give me another beer. And then, like, Tatum's like, what am I, the beer wench? And so then Tatum actually walks away and she goes into the... um, the garage, so we're gonna get to the garage. So, you know, this whole thing's kind of happening. The party's continuing to happen, and so Tatum goes into the garage. She goes into the, uh, the refrigerator, and she gets some beers, um, and it's a kind of a creepy little, you know, scene because it's a little dark in there. She scares herself with, like, this cat that's in there, and, like, but, you know, she has to be the freaking beer wench and, like, get the beer for her boyfriend and all. 
And then you notice, like, in his uh, little, like, refrigerator, he has, like, so many eggs. I'm like, how many damn eggs do you need? But anyway, so there's that. Then you see that Tatum happens across, or what had happened was she locked herself in to the garage. She, she was like, fuck, like, what the hell? So she, nobody's hearing her, so they can't come and get her. So she's like, all right, fuck this then. So, like, she goes and tries to um, open the garage and, you know, make a little spot for herself where she can, like, get through. But as she has done that and she's walking to go underneath the garage door, she, the garage door closes, and that's when you see Ghostface, bitch. So then you see Ghostface, and then she's all like, Tatum's all like, oh, what is this? I spit on your garage, which is a I spit on your grave reference. And so, you know, you have this whole thing, and Tatum's talking to the killer, and, you know, she's all like, oh, you want to play Psycho Killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Please, Mr. Ghostface, I want to be here for the sequel. And then, like, it gets kind of real, though, because then it's like, he's like, literally slashes her arm and she's like what the hell fuck and so then you know she's like putting up a fight though she's like hitting him she throws like a beer bottle or two at him and she's really putting up a fight tatum put up a fight i'll say that my queen and so then she's like trying to get out of there she can't get out through the door but she is you know she can't seem to get you know the garage up because she's in there with the killer so she's gonna go through this doggy door this little dog flap right the pet flap. And so then, you know, she gets kind of stuck in there and then, you know, the killer then like makes it so that like the garage door goes up and then Tatum's crushed in the garage door. So then Tatum gets her ass killed, which is like really sad. Rest in peace, Tatum. Rip. But anyway, so then you have, um, let's see, you have Billy and Sydney. They're talking because Billy showed up to the party. And so, you know, um, because I think it was Stu and Jamie Kennedy, uh, Brandy, they were, like, standing by the door, and it's while people were still kind of leaving a little bit. And so then, you know, the Billy shows up, and, you know, Sydney's all like, oh, we need to talk anyway. Um, so they go upstairs to the parents' bedroom, I guess, to go and talk and all that. And so then, um, so you have that scene, so you have all those people, and then you have Stu and Randy, um, as, like, Billy and Sid go away, and they go up to the parents' room, there's, like, a whole thing where, like, they have this little exchange of, like, uh, I think you're clueless, be like, really, Alicia? So that was, like, kind of a fun little thing, too, because that, that movie had just come out a year before, um, so it was kind of funny that they commented on it as well. So then Billy and Sid go into Stu's parents' room, um, and they're talking about, you know, like, no, I'm sorry. Like, you know, uh, Billy's all trying to say, like, you know, I understand, like, you know, people grieve different ways, da 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 Um, and then Sid's like, you know, no, I'm sorry. Like, I need to, I need to stop letting my mom's death, like, you know, just, like, impede me from these things and all this. Be like, why can't my life just, and then they'd start talking about, like, they start talking about, like, you know, Sid's all, like, in some way, I feel like, you know, what if I'm, I turn out like her, like the bad seed. And then Billy makes something about like, um, silence of the lambs. He makes some silence of the lambs comment where she, it's like, it's like Jodie Foster in silence of the lambs where she keeps seeing dead flashbacks or flashbacks of her dead dad or whatever. Sid's all like, yeah, this isn't a movie. And then, you know, Billy's all like, of course it is. It's all one big movie. You know, it's just a matter of how you take it. And then what's her name? Like, uh, Sid's all like, why can't my life be a big riot movie? Like, a third-rate porno or whatever and so then you know sid decides because she loves billy so much that she's about to have sex with him Ooh, 
and so we're going against this trope of like virgins will always live till the end. So like, cause she ain't about to be a virgin no more. And so then, you know, they have sex on his parents' bed, which is like really disrespectful. Um, but you have that whole kind of scene. So, and it's really interesting because then the next scene we have is the rules speech that uh, Randy Meeks is like delivering. Be like, there are certain rules that you need to follow in order to survive a horror movie. Number one, you can never have sex. And you can never do this, 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 and all that. We all know the we all know the drill. Um, and you can't ever say, I'll be right back. And then, like, um, Stu says, like, hey, you want a beer? You're like, I'll be right back. Uh. You have that whole kind of thing. Gail and Kenny, in their, um, after the rule speech, they're in the news van, they're watching this, and then she's all like, I'm going to go and, like, you know, She's going to go do something. She's going to take a walk or get some fresh air. Uh, but I think Dewey, by that point, had actually um, come up and was like, oh, hey, like, there's this car that's out there, and I was going to take a look at it. You want to go walk with me? And they're all like, yeah, sure, why not? In the meantime, while they're watching Halloween, like, on this, like, downstairs, it's cutting back to Sid and Billy having sex or, like, stripping their clothes off to, like, about to have sex, which I thought was really good. I thought the music that was used was really, really well done. So you have that whole thing. You also then have Gail saying, I'll be right back, which also sets up that, oh, no, is she going to die? Um, but she doesn't. So you have that scene. Then you have the scene of, um, so after you see the cutting from Billy and Stu, um, you know, pre-coitus um you then have this uh it's a uh, shot of jamie kennedy answering the phone randy's answering the phone he learns that principal Hembry has died uh it uses the halloween music really well so they're watching halloween um downstairs while the halloween is playing and so the call comes up and it's really creepy because they use this music while you know Randy's talking about, like, listen, they found Principal Henry, like, gutted and, like, you know, posted on the goalpost at the you know, football field or whatever. And then, of course, these, like, just sardonic-ass teenagers are like, well, we gotta go see it before, like, we, you know, they take him down. And there's, like, a bunch of pieces of shit, pretty much. Um, so then, you know, the the teens, they get in their cars and they're just, like, driving and they're probably, like, a little tipsy, too. So this is just so dangerous. And so then you have, um, so you have that, and then you have Dewey and Gail, they're walking down the road, they're getting to know each other a little bit, that's when you find out that Dewey's name is Dwight, and then, you, you know, Gail's talking about, like, well, what about a name like Gail Weathers, I sound like I'm a meteorologist or whatever, and then they almost get run down by these teens, which is kind of crazy, I love how, um, how uh, Dewey says, like, freeze, but they're not gonna, they can't hear him, so they have that whole thing, and then Dewey and Gail, they kiss, uh, while they're sitting, and, you know, while they're laying there in the grass. And uh, then, like, they find the car. They find Neil Prescott's car, I believe, just kind of randomly there um, in the woods. So you're like, oh, no, something's going on. So you, the, by this point, you're like, oh, my God, who's who's the killer? Because you're kind of thinking, like, oh, maybe it's not Stu or, you know, it's not Stu and it's not Billy, maybe. But, like, who else could it be? Maybe it is her dad, right? So then you have Sid and Billy, their post-sex conversation. So, you know, like, um, Sidney's asking, like, who'd you call when you were in the police station? Because you know how they give you a call? Be like, who's your call? And then he's all like, I called my dad. And then, you know, Sidney's all like, no, you didn't. Like, but Sheriff Burke called your dad. I saw him. Like, this whole thing. And so she pretty much is saying, like, I just think it'd be an interesting way to kind of throw me off, you know, if you use your call to call me. 
And then, you know, Billy's all like, what do I have to do to make you feel like I'm not a killer? And then in the meantime, when you see this, like you see Ghostface coming in through the room and then Billy gets stabbed. Ooh, no, this is happening. So then Ghostface and Sydney have a chase scene where like, you know, she's getting chased all over the house, up in the, you know, upstairs and all that. And it's real tense and all this. And it's really scary. So then she goes into this one like attic area. She has this like long hallway kind of thing where there's like a, a window at the end. And she's all like, bitch, I gotta get out of here. So then, you know, she goes out the window and she's like kind of hanging on the side of the house. She's like, all right, I'll figure this out. But then Ghostface comes up behind her and says, boo, bitch. And so then she falls out of the, uh, she falls out the window. But thankfully she falls onto a boat and then she just falls on the ground, which, you know, at least the boat impacted her fall. Um, so then you have that. And this is when um, Sid finds Tatum's body. Um, and so then you have the scene with Randy is saying, you know, he's watching... Uh, Halloween, and he's just like talking. He's just like drunk, I guess. And he's just like behind you, Jamie, behind you. And so while this is happening, you see Ghostface just like walking, skulking, you know, behind this couch where Randy's sitting. And then it's just really funny because they just, I guess, got very lucky because they just so happened to cast a guy named Jamie. And Jamie Lee Curtis is the star of Halloween that he's talking to, you know, because he's drunk. And so, you know, that whole scene is just really funny where he's just saying, behind you, Jamie, behind you. And he's almost like he's talking to himself. So then you have, um, you know, nobody can hear, you know, Sydney, but like, ooh, she's going to like run to the news van. She's all like, ooh, no, I'm scared. So then Kenny's there and, you know, she's just like, you know, you know, come save me pretty much. Or she's just like, you know, there's somebody trying to kill me. And then, um, you know, they're watching the video that gail had left the video camera and they see ghostfaced in the you know the house and be like oh no like he's gonna kill somebody and you know he does and he ends up running out of the house and then you see kenny gets killed he gets his throat slashed which is really sad and then he, uh sid runs away so she gets out of the news van and all that and she's just like no bitch i gotta get away so then dewey and gail run back and they're just like running back and they come back to Stu's house and you see Dewey go into the house with his gun drawn, and he's just, like, going around like a scared-ass guy, which I would be, too. And so he's just, like, going and seeing, like, who's in the house, and, you know, but he's scared out of his wits, probably. So then while um, Dewey's doing that, and Gail, you know, is just kind of hanging out there, you know, she goes back to her news van, she's finding blood. She finds a lot of it. And so she's like, oh, bitch, what's going on? What happened to my news van? So then she's like, you know, she finds blood and she tries to, like, uh, leave. She's trying to, like, get the ignition started on her news van. And then it just so happens Randy stumbles across her. And then he, uh, she has this phone where she's, like, trying to call somebody. And she just, like, hits him with the phone. Which is a lot of hitting with the phone for whatever reason in this movie. But, like, hits him with the phone. So he's, like, kind of, you know, made out, you know, or he's been kind of, not knocked out, but he's been incapacitated and so then um gail tries to drive away but she's just like what the hell's going on with this window and so she sees like when she puts the windshield wipers on that it's actually blood and then um kenny's body like literally just kind of she i think backs up and then when she backs up and accelerates like the body of kenny just like kind of slumps onto the windshield and so then you know she's trying to drive away but kenny's body's on top and then she's just like you know kenny whatever but i you know get off my fucking windshield 
So then, you know, um, Gail's just driving away. She's just like, oh my god, I gotta get out of here. And so she tries to drive away, uh, but then Sydney tries to flag Gail down, but then Gail kind of runs off the road and hits a tree. So, like, oh no, Gail, like, what's going on? Um, and that was actually not planned, apparently. So it was planned that the, um, this van was going to, like, actually roll when it, like, crashed off the road, but it didn't, and instead it just kind of hit, and it hit into a tree, but it worked a lot better, I think. All right, so then we got Ghostface. She's cha- he, you know, he's chasing after Sydney, and Sydney's running. She's just like, "Oh no, I gotta leave." So then she comes across this um, police car. You know, I believe it was um, Dewey's police car, maybe that was sitting there. And you know, she's locked herself in the police car. Um, but you know, then Ghostface comes up, and he's just like, "Boo, bitch!" And so then you know. Ghostface is trying to kill Sydney because then what happens is like, you know, um, she's just like locked herself in the car, but like she can't go anywhere because the Ghostface has the keys. And so she's all like, okay, I gotta get out of here, you know. And this guy just like kind of swoops away and goes away. And then she sees the dispatcher radio and she's just like, you know, please somebody come. Like, you know, this is the address I'm at. Like, it's Stu Mocker's house. Like, somebody's trying to kill me. You know, he's going to try and kill me. And so then um, Ghostface does try to kill somebody. He comes up through the back of the police um, cruiser because he has the keys. He can do that, I guess. And so then um, tries to kill Sid. But then she escapes out of the police car. She runs back to the house. This is where you see Sydney and Randy and Stu all together. So Randy's like limping. He's like, Sid, like, you know, we got to get out of here. And then we have um, Stu being like, you know, he killed Tatum. He killed all of them. Da, 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 you know, and they're blaming each other and they're trying to kind of do this. And then, you know, I love when Sydney's just like pointing the gun at both of them. And then she's just like, fuck you both. She goes in the house. And by this point, Billy falls down the stairs because at this point he had been stabbed and it's like all freaking scary so they get together and be like oh my god billy like we have to you know do something like i gotta leave um so then you see that it's um i think you then open the door and then like randy just like runs into the little foyer area little foyer and you know you see that uh you know, they're just like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And then Billy just shoots Randy. And then you start to see like, oh, this is what we're now seeing. And so then, you know, because I think what Randy said was like, you know, he's gone mad. He's gone mad. Um, and then <laughs> Billy's like, we all go a little mad sometimes. And he shoots Randy. And, you know, Sid's just like, oh, no, Randy. And then, you know. Then um, Billy just starts, you know, listing these references. Anthony Perkins, psycho. And then he, like, takes the blood that he, like, apparently is bleeding out. And he, like, licks on it and sucks his finger. And he's like, corn syrup. Same stuff they use as blood and carry. And so then, this is when you find the whole thing of the, um, the killers. So you find out Billy and Stu are revealed to be the killers. Because then you see Stu and he's like, surprise, Sydney. And personally, I mean, you can kind of read into it that, like, Billy and Stu, I mean, must be somewhat super gay for each other. Like, I don't know. The way they look, I think the way that Stu looks at Billy is like a whole thing, you know, and he's really into it. And so they have this whole kind of like really creepy when you think about it kind of conversation with, you know, Sydney, where, you know, they pretty much are talking about like, you know, I think she wants a motive. Maybe we don't have a motive, Sid. Like, did Hannibal Lecter ever really explain why he likes to eat people? Didn't think so, you know, and it's all this kind of thing. And you pretty much find out that Billy 
so Maureen Prescott had an affair with Billy's dad, and that was the motive for the killings. It's one of the suspected motives. Um, and, like, you know, that whole thing happens, and somehow they're, like, going to plan to frame Sid's dad for the murders. They're doing it on the anniversary of Maureen's murder. Um, so they kidnapped, uh, Mr. Prescott, Neil Prescott. So when you think about it, I mean, it really probably was the fact that like whole story, Neil was there on a Friday or whatever being like, well, I'm leaving honey. Like, and then at some point they just like kidnapped her dad, uh, probably while, you know, Sydney was sleeping or something that night. Um, and then has just been barricading him at the house, uh, for all this time, which is kind of crazy. Um, and there is a scene where, uh, Billy says, you know, why, why? Um, and this like whole scene just reminds me of Rebecca Gayhart in urban legend. If you know, you know, we'll talk about it, um, on another episode, but, uh, there's just like the scene in there. Um, but yeah, so it just reminds me of that, uh, which is funny because I think urban legend was definitely, uh, inspired by scream obviously so it's interesting that like you know i think maybe there was some some little bit of uh inspiration there perhaps but anyway so yeah then billy and Stu like stab each other it's like slightly maybe kind of homoerotic kind of uh but they just stab each other so like you know uh, Billy stabs Stu, and then Stu stabs Billy, he goes a little too deep, I think, and so then, you know, they're just bleeding out, because they're supposed to be left for dead, and then, you know, um, Sydney's just like, you sick fucks, you've seen one too many movies, and so then, um, you see this whole thing, you know, they stabbed each other at this point, and the gun disappears, because, um, Stu was about to get the gun, and like, kind of, you know, plant it on, um, on Neil Prescott, but then you see that Gail is about to shoot the boys, and then, you know, she's all, like, being a bad bitch, but then she found out that the safety was on, and so then, you know, they kind of, like, kick her, and then she, like, gets knocked unconscious for a little bit. And then while, um, they don't shoot, um, Gail for whatever reason, but then, like, Billy cracks his neck, which is, like, really gross, um, kinda, and apparently he just kind of did that, like, Skeet Ulrich just did that as part of the scene, which I thought was really good. But yeah, they decide not to just, like, you know, um, shoot, or I think what it was was that Billy was getting ready to shoot, like, Gale and Dewey, pretty much, but, like, because Dewey at this point is, like, stabbed in the back, and, like, he's just, you know, laying out on the porch at this palatial-ass mansion that Stu and his parents live at. And so, you know, that whole thing. Then you see that Sydney has disappeared before Billy can shoot Gail. Because even they're all like, you know, Stu, I thought you said she was dead. Billy, she looked dead. Um, so then, you know, you have that scene where Sydney disappears uh, before Billy can shoot Gail. And so, like, we'll go look for her. And then Sydney calls the phone. And, you know, she's all like, you know, being an iconic queen. This is literally what I said. Sydney calls the phone and is an iconic queen. Because she's all like, guess who, you know, called the police and reported your sorry ass. And, you know, all this. And so then uh, Billy's just going crazy. He's, like, ripping everything up. Being like, you bitch, you bitch, you bitch. Um, and so, you know, that whole thing happens. And then <laughs> Billy, or no, Stu gets on the phone. And he's just like... I'm much too sensitive for this. So he says something like this. He's like, um, did you really call the police? 
And, you know, Sydney's talking about, like, you know, well, you know, Billy had a motive, but what's your motive? Like, I'm much too, you know, sensitive to peer pressure. You know, she's, he's like, did you really call the police? Be like, you bet you sorry ass I did. And he's all like, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. You know, and that whole thing. It's just, like, really darkly funny. Uh, that whole scene with Billy and Stu is just fucking scary when you think about it. Because they're pretty much talking about, like, how they raped and murdered Maureen the year before. And it's just, like, really fucking scary and creepy. And you're just like, dude, you're talking to this girl's this woman's daughter like it's just really crazy so then in the meantime you have the halloween movie playing in the background it's adding to the scene because it's kind of like um you know the sound effects with jamie lee in there and like the music and all that's just really really good i thought it was very good um so then you know billy's like skulking around he's looking for sydney he goes he looks in the closet and then she stabs him with this umbrella like one of those like uh tip umbrellas or whatever so then sydney fights with uh you know so she stabs billy she then fights with Stu, and then you know they always had a thing for you sydney and so then like they fight and fight and then she drops the tv right on his head bitch and he kill she kills him so then randy reappears randy be like oh my god randy i thought you were dead and so randy reappears and uh billy then still tries to kill sydney because he's not dead quite yet and so then Gail, you know, just comes in and is badass, and she shoots Billy, finally. And Gail, Randy, and Sid are left as the survivors. Oh, and Mr. Prescott, I guess. So then you have that. So then, you know, they kind of have this moment where, like, you know, be careful. This is the moment where, you know, uh, the, this is the end of the movie where, like, this is, like, the end of the movie where, like, you know, the killer comes back for one final scare. And then you have this, like, Billy's about to do something, and then... She just double taps and shoots him in the head. And it's great. And she says, not in my movie. Um, and she's just being an icon, which I love. So then you see Billy, uh, Sid shoots Billy in the head, like I said. And then Sid's dad's still alive. So like, you know, she's like, daddy. And so she's like, you know, let's, let's get you out of here. So then Dewey is put into an ambulance. He was actually supposed to die in the original script, but he does not. They put him in the ambulance. He seems okay. And then you see Gail Weathers kind of getting herself primped to do this report where she talked about a, a personal eyewitness report of this. And then uh, and then you see this like beautiful sunset because you got to think this happened all night. So they're literally doing this in the morning. This is all happening. And they're about to do this like, you know, news report about what actually happened with a little ghost face killings and all of that. And then that's when the movie comes to an end kind of goes without saying that this film in particular is definitely um a very beloved horror film um of its time you know uh it was definitely influential for a lot of other horror films that came out of it uh from this i mean the stars of this movie like went into stardom after this uh you know nev campbell was able to be in the sequels you know of course um and then of course courtney cox and david arquette were also in the sequels they then got married they are since now divorced but they did get married they met on this movie um rose mcgowan had a really good career in hollywood before she decided to leave hollywood matthew lillard's still working skeet Ulrich is still working um kevin williamson was able to make i know what you did last summer after this he also was able to finally create you know teaching mrs tingle even though it's not a great movie um you know it, um 
he was able to do that as his first directorial movie. Um, you know, he really he really did a lot, and he then created Dawson's Creek, uh, which went on for six seasons on the the WB. It was a very popular show at the time, um, and really got a great career out of it. You know, so he kind of did exactly what he wanted to do. It was you know, it was kind of because of this movie Scream, where really everybody involved really got something great out of it. So many people love it because it is self-referential, it's meta, which is why some people don't like it. But overall, I think it's still a pretty freaky, scary time. Um, it has that kind of comedy in there, which some people can appreciate and enjoy. And um, yeah, I, I just think it's such a good uh, a good horror movie. It really helped revitalize the the genre that is horror. It made a whole lot of imitators after it. You know, I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend, uh, all these kinds of movies that came after it. But I do think like um, this one stands alone as as that um, kind of penultimate, you know, '90s horror movie, if you will. Uh, currently, right now, you can stream uh, Scream all over the place. I think it is on Paramount Plus still. Um, you can also get it. Uh, you can get a a three film Blu-ray of it, like I have, um, which you know um, it has Scream One, Two, and Three. It's got some behind the features, like um, it has like all the commentary tracks for each film, I think. Uh, and it also has a bonus disc where it has uh, Scream: The Inside Story, and then Still Screaming, which is another documentary where I got a lot of the information, um, the fun fact stuff from, uh, and production history and all that. So. Yeah, I definitely recommend Scream if you haven't already seen it. If you haven't already seen it, I don't know if you've lived living under a rock or, you know, you just got like a, a Prime Video subscription yesterday or whatever, but I definitely highly recommend it. Um, and I think it's definitely worth your time for sure. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you want to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you just want to say, hey girl, hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow Cult Cinema Circle on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle. Twitter handle is Cult Cinema Circle. On those platforms, I tend to post when new episodes release. I'll post what the next episode is going to be. Uh, I make Instagram stories with a little fun facts and all that and just general fun stuff over there and on letterboxd you can find me at jesse j-e-s-s-e kremp k-r-e-m-p all one word on there i tend to log the movies that i've been watching i write little reviews about them and just general foolishness over there be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. I make it pretty easy for you to find the show. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review. Um, it helps get people to see the show more, and it helps more people find the show in general. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember... Billy and his penis don't deserve you. Take care. Bye.